Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today is with great pleasure. My guest is a longtime friend and a colleague, Professor Awad Alabi. Awad is currently an associate professor at Wright State University, and I can easily say that he's the world-leading expert, probably the only one, that knows everything about the famous Navy Musa Festival. Obviously, we're going to talk about extensively about its origins, its development, and also uh, its end and possible resurrection in the last uh, few years or so. Suffice to say that the Navy Musa Festival certainly marked the life of Jerusalemites for centuries, in fact, not just the Islamic community, but also the Jewish and Christians around the city. Awad has published a number of articles focusing on the festival, but also focusing on the question of rituals and obviously the banners connected to the Nebi Musa festival. And more importantly, he has an upcoming book, Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850-1948, that will be published by University of Texas Press. And I'm really looking forward to read it, hopefully in the next spring when it will be published. But first of all, a what? Welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. A pleasure to be here. Long time listener, first time guest. I've always wanted to say that. And I will take advantage later to ask you a few things about uh, uh, your experience of a podcast since we are uh, reaching the end of season two. But the first question, which is inescapable, is what, what is your Jerusalem? What is your connection with the city? Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me, and I've always uh, enjoyed listening to your podcast. Well, uh, I was born in Jerusalem uh, just before the 67 war, but my family lived in Ramallah, 
I grew up with a, a lot of um, romantic stories about Jerusalem because my mother was born there and my mother's family is from Jerusalem and my grandmother, <clears throat> her side of the family uh, lived uh, um, in the Christian quarter of Jerusalem. So I grew up with these kind of romantic stories. My uh, grandmother's uh, home church was uh, uh, Maria Oop, uh, the church right next to the Church of the uh, Holy Sepulchre. And uh, my mother, uh, uh, her family eventually lived in Upper Baca. And um, <clears throat> um, she was really very much a part of the city in a way that a, a Palestinian can no longer be a part of the city uh, today. She, uh, she was a, a young woman in the, uh, in the 40s and um, she remembered and she would tell us stories of uh, riding her bicycle to the YMCA and um, uh, going into the old city and she can remember seeing uh, uh, Edward Said's family uh, bookstore um, and um, uh, she had friends uh, uh, from the uh, uh, who were Muslim and Jewish and that to her those weren't uh, 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 very political borders um, at that time that this was just part of her larger Arab community the Arab Jewish and uh, uh, Palestinian uh, community and so that was, she was really, uh, I, I look at it today, like she was uh, really coming of age just at the time this entire city and conflict and country was, was collapsing in front of her in the way that she understood it. And um, it was uh, a life interrupted in a way to borrow a title, Jerusalem Interrupted. Uh, uh, edited by uh, Lina Jayusi. Um, and so 1948, of course, the Nakba was the turning point in her life and her family's life. They were one of the few families that remained in Jerusalem. And I think there were maybe no more than um, about a dozen uh, Palestinian families, and I think uh, a few Armenians who remained in West Jerusalem. And um, it was uh, very challenging to remain there. Um, her brother was sent to Jordan uh, to open up the family business. Another brother was studying in Beirut, but she, her, sis her two sisters and her brother remained with the family in, in their home. And um, uh, it increasingly became more difficult as the Israeli police, uh, after 1949, uh, the Israeli police, the Israeli army came into the house uh, searching for weapons. They were interrogate her. They would uh, uh, ask her about a, a fiance uh, whom they thought may be a fighter. and. Um, <clears throat> there were constant searches in their homes. Uh, the difficulty with her father was that uh, his business, which was uh, kind of a, 
uh, a steel um, construction, a steel uh, materials uh, shop. Uh, it was located south of the old city in no man's land. And Isam Nassar wrote about this um, because my grandfather, Jidius, um, left a diary of his, um, uh, his conflict with the new Israeli state uh, because he tried to retrieve the material, the goods from his shop after 1949, which was located in uh, parts of West Jerusalem. And he hired an Israeli lawyer. They won the case and it was the goods were worth about 100,000 pounds. He won the case, but then the Israeli state didn't permit him to, um, uh, to retrieve his material. And um, they tried to kind of uh, establish a life. I don't, uh, they really had no income, I think at one point, or it was very limited. And um, my mother and her sister ended up for a year living in a German convent in uh, Jerusalem to, um, because of the constant searches in their home, they were able to endure all this for about five years. And in 1953, it became, they came to the conclusion that it was too difficult living under this really house arrest and uh, military rule that they ended up uh, moving to Ramallah. But, uh, uh, but all those memories or those, the images I have of Jerusalem uh, really profoundly come from my mother and her life and her youth. And uh, she really used to speak about it in such a, a, a romantic way and not overly I idealized in a way that we could critique it as historians. And uh, it was a privileged life, I think, because she uh, had this kind of, she came from a bourgeoisie bourgeois family in a way and uh, had some wealth and uh, had access to education. But um, um, so I, I think she was representative of that, that community that found uh, that part of the larger community were Palestinians who were um, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, that it was just natural to go to school with them, to do business with them to see them on the, the streets, to be their neighbors. So longer, long answer maybe, I'm sorry, but that's my uh, 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 encounter and connection with Jerusalem other than being born there. It's not long, actually, I would say it's okay. uh, not long enough because in fact, one thing that I believe in, maybe you as an historian, you can tell me that one thing that is missing and one thing that I noticed while actually recording episodes for the podcast is the family history of, of Jerusalem. We know a lot about some of the families because of their role, particularly political or religious. Uh, we certainly have uh, uh, people uh, also guests in the, of the podcast like Mona Halabi, who collected uh, and is still collecting 
thousands of, uh, of pictures, not just of buildings, monuments, but also families. But we don't really have narratives of family themselves and how they experienced not just the tragic moments of 1948 and, and later on 1967, but also daily life, who they were, how they lived, uh, which I believe is not just an issue probably with Jerusalem, is more you know, at large with Middle Eastern history. We probably need, still need to get there. But I was wondering if you feel like maybe we are missing a family history of Jerusalem. Absolutely. It's that larger problem in the historiography, which um, <clears throat> a number of historians now have, uh, have tackled. And uh, I believe Bishara Domani wrote um, an article about his grandmother um, uh, emphasizing the importance of studying family histories and, um, and, and moving away from just this emphasis on the uh, uh, looking at the Palestinians solely through the lens of one of conflict or political conflict and then political leaders and nationalist leaders and seeing the diversities of the community and the diversity of the people who lived there as they made a life that may not always conform to this political context or can only be understood and explained through uh, a political context. Uh, a, a very uh, mundane point would be my grandmother, um, uh, my mother's mother, she helped my grandfather set up his uh, this steel business, this construction business after World War I, where she would help him in the shop, in the blacks, almost like a blacksmith shop where um, she would um, 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 help in, um, in, in, in uh, uh, I'm not exactly sure how to describe it, the, the bellows to make the, the fire hot enough to forge the steel or, because he was preparing steel for the construction uh, for, you know, sometimes just for the steel for veranda or for um, that you see. So she was part of that, but that story's never uh, recorded. And that's only through hearsay from cousins that would get that information. And she was a wonderful, uh, uh, wonderful uh, person. And, uh, but that type of narrative of, uh, of, um, of, of women being involved in those kind of businesses or industry. And uh, she was involved in a very, in, 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 in a limited capacity, but there's so much we learn moving beyond just an understanding of history through the, um, the filter of what political leaders said, political leaders did, uh, and seeing far more contestation where on a popular level, um, the voices of Fellahim, uh, peasants, are only important if they contribute to a nationalist narrative. And if they, uh, they uh, are seen as complicating or muddling the uh, the 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 these nationalist narratives if they contradict it or challenge it. So um, 
Absolutely. Uh, family histories, the, the, the historians who have done work on family histories. Uh, that's why uh, Isam and Salim Tamari's work um, um, uh, have been so important retrieving those memoirs. Um, and um, when you see it, it it's uh, the result of it is always very rich. One thing I learned in my few years that I spent in Ireland is essentially the relevance of, of this kind of history, not just connected to uh, dramatic events, like in Ireland, they had obviously history of uh, divisions and civil war and war of independence, but really and obviously going back also to the famine, so these very dramatic events, but really it, it matters because it's about protecting heritage. Their, their heritage as families, particularly in a context when you see people moving uh, all around the world, in a sense, the Irish and the Palestinians in different ways, uh, they share some sort of the same sort of trajectory as there are more Irish abroad than, than in Ireland, in fact. And, you know, and when you look at the, the number of Palestinian refugees and in time how they grew, again, you, you have these very large communities all abroad and, and everything then becomes in a question of memory, heritage and family history. I'm sorry, just gonna, if you don't mind, we lose the material culture. My mother always used to be, bemoan when we would watch the PBS show, uh, um, Antiques Roadshow. And she would say, all the things we left behind and all the things everyone left behind in, in 48, um, all these, you know, uh, embroidery and, uh, and material culture and, and art left behind or sadly looted, um, that's part of your heritage. That's part of how you tell family history. And you don't have access to that now. And you're absolutely right because you're so migratory, you can't take that with you. And the Irish are an uh, example of that. Yeah, that, that was a fascinating comparison, which I kind of was aware of, but uh, up until I started working in Ireland and getting in touch with you know, colleagues, friends, but also reading more about it, then I realized this kind of like strong connection between the two. And, and of course, it's not only between the Irish and Palestinians or plenty of other communities, mm -hmm. but certainly yeah. for me as a personal experience, that brought them together. But let me now move to talk about the main subject of your professional career, which is the Nebi Musa Festival. And I guess the first question I want to ask you is, what is Nebi Musa? What is Nebi Musa Festival? Can you give us a sense of its origin? Sure. Uh, and first, let me say, I, I, as much as uh, I appreciate you uh, referring to me as a, a world expert at Nebi Musa, I, I still feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm learning a lot about it still. Um, <clears throat> Nebi Musa refers to the prophet Moses, uh, the most mentioned uh, uh, human in the Quran and um, <clears throat> the most mentioned figure in the Quran other than uh, God and uh, revered in the Islamic tradition. And um, in the Islamic tradition, there are uh, stories just as they derive from the Hebrew Bible of uh, certainly many stories of his, his, um, his, uh, his career as a, as a prophet, as a, uh, as a holy figure um, and that are um, based in the Quran and, and, and the Bible. 
uh, and popular literature um, um, that circulated widely in the Islamic world, uh, as well as the Hadith, the uh, oral traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. But uh, there are also accounts of his death. And that is uh, where in the Bible it says that he dies before entering the promised land uh, or the, the holy land. And, um, and there's always speculation of where he uh, is buried. And in the Islamic tradition, there were a number of um, uh, uh, a number of sites that claimed to be his tomb. Um, some in uh, Damascus, or south of Damascus, or uh, east of the Jordan River near what is today Erbit, and um, travelers, uh, religious scholars would debate this throughout the centuries. But other religious scholars um, and chroniclers would say uh, in the medieval period that we don't know the location of Moses' tomb and that he died in the desert without anyone knowing and they fully accepted the Hebrew biblical account of it. But there was one uh, local tradition that emerged in an era of um, um, during the Baibars, the Sultan Baibars of the Mamluk period in the 13th century. This is an era when the Mamluks are still in conflict um, uh, with the Crusaders um, and had just uh, ended that conflict uh, with them. So uh, in many ways, the holy lands became uh, themselves, uh, these lands became contested, fought over. Um, and so religious sites and holy sites became a way to uh, assert one's uh, claim to the land, one's legitimate claim to the land. And so certainly the, uh, the crusaders did this by marking, in a way, demarcating what the Holy Land is by building uh, religious sites or uh, monasteries or saying that this shrine here is dedicated to this saint in a way demarcating what the Holy Land, uh, the Holy Land is. A way of mapping their claims to uh, the Holy Land. And so in this context, context of greater conflict over the land that is interpreted solely as uh, a holy land and that you can strengthen your claim to the land by uh, asserting, uh, by pointing to a religious shrine that uh, uh, is of your religious tradition. This is a period when we see an increasing number of Islamic uh, religious sites dedicated to um, uh, dedicated to um, biblical figures, and as one scholar says, rediscovering these holy sites, and um, and so you see uh, a, a number of shrines dedicated to biblical figures or uh, Quranic uh, figures or shrines dedicated to those who fought against the Crusades. And so 
these shrines and holy places become uh, markers to assert the uh, claims of each religious community. And in a way, the Nebi Musa shrine um, uh, uh, near Jericho, um, south of Jerusalem, west of Jericho, um, becomes this uh, becomes part of this larger, in a way, um, we could almost refer to it as a religious dialogue, a religious debate. And um, Baibars hears about uh, uh, the local tradition that honors um, uh, a mound of earth or a sand dune or a dune or a sand hill that local tradition had identified as the tomb of the Nebi Musa, of Nebi Musa, the prophet Moses. And <clears throat> that claim had already been made um, uh, about 50 years earlier or so by a Persian traveler, Al-Harawi. And, um, but local tradition had uh, identified it as Al-Kathib Al-Ahmar, the red hill or the red sand dune or the red hill. Um, and uh, Al-Kathib Al-Ahmar relates to a tradition in the, in, in the Hadith in which the Prophet Moses, uh, I'm sorry, which the uh, Prophet Muhammad is said to have seen um, the Prophet Moses standing and praying in his tomb near El Kathib al Ahmad, the, uh, the red hill, um, <clears throat> that uh, during his night journey from, um, uh, from Mecca to Jerusalem. And so, local tradition in, in Palestine identified El Kathib al Ahmad near Jericho as, oh, this is the Kathib al-Ahmar, this is the red hill mentioned in the oral tradition, the hadith of the prophet um, Muhammad. And so because of that, in a way of strengthening Viber's claim to be this defender of Islam, this, um, uh, this, uh, this uh, warrior in jihad against the crusaders par excellence, he, financed, he established a waqf, an endowment to support a maqam, uh, a shrine, and uh, a tomb uh, to be built, uh, a shrine to be built over the tomb and really constructing more of a tomb um, at, this, uh, at this site. And so he, in the year 1269, is uh, really gives legitimacy to this claim, though at the time, there were probably, uh, there were competing claims and about, uh, about four or five other claims. But because of his uh, support for it financially, he establishes this endowment, which um, also uh, allows for um, welcoming pilgrims um, once a year for an annual festival and lands to support the feeding of the pilgrims in the shrine uh, and for the shrine's upkeep. But it's a very humble shrine. It's uh, really only like five meters by five meters. 
and um, it's uh, it's built in the typical style of a dome over a tomb. So it's not this larger structure that some of your listeners may be familiar with today, with with large walls and uh, cells that accommodate visitors. It's a very humble shrine in a remote, largely desolate area without any vegetation or, or water available, though there's a, a, a small well that uh, um, uh, is near the shrine, is becomes part of the courtyard of the shrine, but it's a very remote area. And so it's not an imposing architectural structure in the way other large shrines are. It's a very humble structure. O over time, the, uh, this became one of the leading and most important festivals in, in, for the Muslims of Southern Palestine. And, and uh, it was while maybe today your, some people will be familiar with the, the images of the gathering of, of uh, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, um, many uh, uh, surrounded with sacred banners, um, town and village banners, as well as scouts. That and and really uh, a representation almost of uh, of a nationalist festival. That is very recent, only in the 19th century. For most of its history, from the 13th century into the uh, 19th century, it is largely a site of pilgrimage once a year in April, largely conforming to the Orthodox Easter calendar where the uh, festival would, be, uh, would begin for a week, uh, a week before um, Good Friday. Uh, in the Orthodox Easter calendar. And there are many, um, uh, many uh, Muslim um, religious celebrations that <clears throat> conform to the Orthodox uh, Easter calendar and, and religious calendars. And, um, but most of the, uh, for, for many centuries up to the 19th century, most of the celebrations were at the shrine where pilgrims would come from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, and they would perform ziyara, uh, a pilgrimage to gain proximity to the sacredness, the baraka of the tomb. And they would light votive candles, they would conduct Sufi rituals, uh, such as dhikr ceremonies, uh, reciting the name uh, of God. Uh, they, would, they would also, um, dance in, uh, in a folkloric way or folk dances and folk sing folk songs. Um, <clears throat> but the shrine itself was the site of the festival. And it had no association really with Jerusalem as the site. The pilgrimage was the main uh, uh, purpose to worship at the shrine and this is where we, we see there's really little difference than what we may assume, because sometimes it's, it's referred to as popular religious culture or popular religion. It's hard to assign that kind of 
uh, nomenclature to it because, or terminology, because uh, you have ulama, religious officials from Jerusalem, Ottoman officials, um, <clears throat> uh, certainly peasants uh, from um, and villagers from uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, Bedouin, all come together uh, to worship there. There isn't a clear demarcation between what is official Islam from so-called popular Islam. And that doesn't itself appear as a category until the modern era. So it is largely a site of religious worship at the shrine um, until the mid 19th century, when in the mid 19th century, in an era of modern reforms, state reforms, of uh, greater state authority over the territory, uh, over the provinces, and the um, formation of new uh, state institutions, such as municipalities and the provincial councils, this is when these new authorities in a way uh, appro appropriate control of the festival and redesign it in a way to, um, I argue, augment their own authority. The Ottoman uh, 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 authorities are interested in, in Jerusalem because they want to, to make sure that they still appear to the larger public as um, honorable Muslims respecting Islamic tradition in an era of modern Western secular reforms. And the local uh, notables want to uh, uh, appear as the, um, they, they redesigned the festival in a way, locating it more in, in Jerusalem, where all the, where villagers um, and towns from uh, Hebron and Nablus and their surrounding villages would first meet in Jerusalem on certain designated days, uh, worship at the, uh, uh, at the Haram al-Sharif and then march out with their colorful banners uh, representing their towns, Sufi orders, um, villages um, to uh, just outside the city at Ras al-Abud uh, uh, on the road towards Jericho, where the municipality of Jerusalem had set up a tent to welcome them, uh, offer them refreshments. In a way, then officially, they can, unofficially, they can just march on their own to to the shrine. And um, but having them all congregate there was a way, not just to, uh, in a way, uh, it asserted. Jerusalem's municipal authority. It asserted the authority of these new municipal and provincial figures um, in the Sanjak, the province of Jerusalem, that now had greater state control, who exercised greater political power, as well as exercised military and political power and authority through the entire Sanjak. That the days of local rural notables had ended and that they, the, the urban notables were the true authority. So in a way it is the, um, it, it is a ritual to assert the authority and the status 
and prestige of these urban notables over rural leaders and telling the the, uh, uh, the uh, rural people, make sure you know we can tax you, we can conscript you, we can create a census. And it's not really, though some have interpreted as, as forging a nationalist identity, in that way of people congregating, yes, they, they, they share a sense of community, but in so many ways, the, the new modern festival was there to assert um, the authority of urban notables over rural people, and it uh, maintained their rural identities. People entered carrying the banners of their villages, of their towns, of their local Sufi orders. They had to concede uh, in rituals where they visited or um, uh, uh, watched local officials now leading ceremonies when previously they had nothing to do with the festival. And so this becomes now the new modern festival in the mid 19th century. And then it, uh, I can talk about if you want the mandate era or if you have another question. But you answered already a kind of a list of questions I had about the festival. So I, I really enjoyed it because you preempted a, a lot of stuff that I wrote down. I was just curious about a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, about the rituals. Uh, <clears throat> were these rituals um, kind of like uh, organized in some way or did they emerge spontaneously? So what do we know about uh, sort of the transformation of these rituals and to what extent uh, politics played a role uh, in the transformation also of the Nibi Musa Festival. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Excellent question. And uh, uh, I'm glad you, you centered on organized. Uh, that was the, were these rituals organized. <clears throat> For most of its history, Pilgrims went to the shrine 
they were largely accompanied by Ottoman military, by the Ottoman military, because it's uh, a desolate, remote area that was always subject to uh, brigands and uh, and attacks from Bedouins. So they had to uh, they they had to uh, be accompanied, but other than that, what I've read is that there's uh, very little oversight from religious officials, or even kind of to correct myself, they uh, the, the the members of the ulama themselves uh, participated in these. Um, rituals. So um, <clears throat> it's not as if the members of the Jerusalem ulama um, uh, perform their own rituals separate from, always separate from the larger uh, religious ceremonies that were going on. Our impression is the ulama are uh, represent just official Islam and they're completely divorced from the larger rural traditions. But um, there are many accounts uh, I point to of members of the ulama in Jerusalem welcoming uh, Sufis in, in, in to Jerusalem, uh, accompanying them to the shrine um, where the Sufis would play their drums, cymbals, sing, dance. In one instance, this is, uh, I can't uh, remember exactly who, uh, one religious official, uh, one member of the ulama tells uh, a, a Sufi visiting from Egypt, uh, these activities that you see, the Sufis dancing, playing drums, they all form, they all conform to perm permissible uh, legal actions. And so they are acceptable in the uh, legal category in the Sharia. And so don't think that they're, they're haram. Um, and uh, certainly uh, mystics themselves uh, were part of a larger community of what uh, scholars refer to as uh, scholar Sufis. They, they had a, a foothold in the world of the Sharia and the scholarship and, the, and mysticism. And so they would not have seen these religious activities as something to um, uh, to um, to kind of control or to monitor, uh, they themselves participated in them, um, and one of the most prominent was the uh, 18th century uh, Sufi scholar and, and Nebalusi, uh, who traveled widely and wrote about his time visiting the shrine and then circulating the same popular stories everyone circulated at the time. Stories of uh, uh, the prophet Moses appearing, stories of miracles happening, stories of apparitions. And so uh, this was, uh, they were part of that larger community. It's not this organized religion in constant conflict with local traditions. That's something more familiar in the modern era where uh, uh, religious officials want, uh, usually attached to a state structure, want to impose those kind of traditions. Um, Sufis were very prominent. Uh, they, they played their drums, they played cymbals, they sang, they formed large circles of men um, 
uh, rhythmically dancing to the uh, uh, enunciation of the word uh, Allah or God or uh, other religious words. And so these were part of the larger traditions, lighting candles, um, worshiping at the tomb. Um, and so they were conducted largely together. In the modern era, this is when uh, uh, religious officials become part of new ceremonies in Jerusalem, not at the shrine, where they are ceremoniously receiving the sacred banners, sacred banner of Jerusalem, of, of uh, the Nebi Musa that the Husseini family preserved, or of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, or um, uh, of Nebi Daoud, uh, the prophet uh, David. They would be ceremoniously received, ceremoniously folded in, in elaborate ceremonies uh, alongside maybe the governor of Jerusalem, uh, the mayor would participate, uh, certain notables of Jerusalem, but uh, they didn't um, uh, transfer their religious ceremonies to the shrine. They had still, a, they maintained a minimal presence at the shrine. Uh, officially, and all the uh, quote-unquote official ceremonies, or what I refer to as the modern official uh, Nebi Musa festival, happened in Jerusalem. It didn't occur at the shrine, where um, uh, local officials, uh, uh, Jerusalem notables, uh, religious authorities, participated alongside one another in what were seen as uh, religious ceremonies, ceremoniously folding and unfolding the banners, presenting them to the banner bearers, uh, leading prayers. But this also included now new secular authorities like Ottoman officials and um, uh, local notables. And so I really want to move to the more, it's not even contemporary, but certainly the 20th century period, because uh, with the arrival of the British, uh, the Nebi Musa festival changed. And it's not only because of the arrival of the British, but it's also because of the, obviously, the arrival of Zionists from Europe, which changed the demographic uh, picture uh, of Palestine uh, and partly of Jerusalem, uh, but also the politics, obviously, of the city itself. And uh, by 1920, Nebi Musa uh, festival became also very political. And as we know, in 1920, the Nebi Musa festival was transformed into a, a, a series of riots, which I personally argue was like a, some sort of a, a test between the two movements and he used the festival in order to test each other's strength. And obviously the interpretation of that riot can be very different. Uh, I, I was just wondering how did the, the Nebi Musa festival change throughout the British uh, mandate and how and why the British eventually essentially kind of like uh, uh, ended this, uh, uh, you know, tradition? Well, uh, I can say uh, uh, first publicly, thank you for your wonderful work on the uh, 1920 uh, violence and uh, Nebi Musa. And uh, <clears throat> I learned a lot from it. And uh, absolutely, um, it becomes a site notorious for violence in 1920. Um, uh, referred to as the 1920 uh, riot in Jerusalem uh, or uh, 1920 Nebi Musa riots. 
But uh, throughout most of the mandate period, it remained largely uh, nonviolent, largely peaceful, but uh, where most of the violence was uh, intracommunal. But um, what's interesting is um, I found once the British arrived, they the first Nebi Musa festival is held in, in April 1918. And so this is only four or five months after the British arrived. And they are immediately um, uh, uh, interested in it. They, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a British uh, uh, military officer, uh, I think he had the rank of a general, who wrote uh, a report about it. And he is framing it in 1918 as this has the potential to bring all the communities together. And uh, where we can um, participate and be associated with it to display our uh, respect for uh, the, uh, the Arab and Muslim people of Palestine. So he, he gets it in the way that the British are involved in uh, festivals in India, in, in various colonies, they, uh, they either appropriate um, uh, native uh, traditions and cultures, or they introduce their own and invite local natives to be a part of them. And so the British uh, quickly uh, uh, assign a role for themselves. They, in a way, they like to appear um, as allowing Ottoman traditions, Islamic traditions to continue in an era of British rule. So they basically supplement the role that the Ottomans performed. They replace the Ottoman military with their military band leading the processions. They, <clears throat> the um, uh, Ronald Storrs uh, um, takes the place of the Ottoman governor in receiving and uh, the banners, the sacred banners. The, um, the British officials attend a number of different ceremonies associated with the festival. So they like to quickly, they put themselves in the place that the Ottomans had once, uh, once performed in. And uh, that they assumed these roles that the British had, uh, had, I'm sorry, that the Ottomans had once assumed. And so uh, the, Br the British are very disturbed by the 1920 riots because they see them as uh, disrupting the image of communal harmony that they hoped the, the Nebi Musa festival and that British rule could engender and could foster. And <clears throat> they continue to, after 1920, to monitor the festival. They monitor it closely um, as uh, one of your uh, previous guests uh, uh, had uh, referred to it um, as they, they fetishized the, uh, the banners. Oh, I'm uh, embarrassingly, Yair uh, Wallach uh, had, uh, had referred to it as that way that they, they talked about the arrival of the banners, not the arrival of pilgrims. So they always monitored it to, uh, as a security concern. 
but they had uh, a close agreement with the uh, the Mufti Hajimin Al Husseini, other notables that if they wanted to maintain their role as uh, as interlocutors, as unofficial representatives of the Arab population, they had to make sure that violence would not erupt. But the British, and not just the British, British civilians, European civilians, even European monarchy attended, and in one instance, the Belgian um, prince and princess, who would later become the future uh, king and queen of Belgium, uh, they marched in the processions as if they were one of the pilgrims, as a, a writer for uh, an Arabic newspaper said. So their presence was ubiquitous. And so it really belies the impression of it as always a nationalist, anti-British festival. If the British were always there, they certainly didn't stir uh, a, a nationalist, anti-British violent response. Most, I'll just say quickly, most of the uh, violence after 1920 were intra-communal um, between Muslims, largely in conflicts uh, over uh, maybe between a village and a Bedouin tribe over land, or um, between supporters of the Husseinis or the supporters of the Nashashibis, but it wasn't um, violence directed, um, uh, it wasn't always a, a, a festival that was organized as, a, uh, as um, creating mass politics, um, and mass mobilization against the British. Actually, many of the notables, many of the political leaders are always calling for a peaceful celebration. Um, by the way, many of much of the violence in Christian festivals, such as uh, 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 Easter time, were always between Christian different Christian denominations, between maybe Egyptian Copts and Orthodox, or um, who are attending the same ceremony at the same time. Uh, it, it, the, the British were very ubiquitous in their presence in the festival, and they were quite confident, even though they monitored it, that it would remain a peaceful festival. It certainly is true that most of the violence was uh, between the various sects, and we have plenty of records of that. And it seems like this was largely forgotten for a long time, even though obviously there was some sort of narrative suggesting that, well, <laughs> the communities came together, which they did, in particularly under the British. But it's also true that this sort of uh, skirmishes between particularly various denominations always occurred. And again, I, and I think it's true for not just the Nebi Musa festival, but all, for all sorts of uh, festivals and kind of uh, gatherings where it becomes a chance for groups to uh, settle scores or perhaps, you know, to take advantage of, uh, you know, that gathering in order to express themselves in a different way. But I, I don't certainly want to go there. But I'm very interested in how eventually Nebi Musa ended and how people reacted to the end of, of this uh, uh, old festival. And also, if you can give us a sense of uh, its sort of uh, idea of coming back, because it, somehow um, we saw Nebi Musa festival coming back. Right. Um, 
let me say that by the uh, late 20s, early 30s, this is when you get to begin to see the larger uh, crowds and the images of large processions coming into the city. This is when uh, the Mufti invites <clears throat> uh, pilgrims from not, uh, areas that have not traditionally celebrated Nebi Musa. So coming from Jaffa, um, um, <clears throat> coming from uh, Hi uh, Jaffa, Haifa, inviting youth and scouting groups and uh, placing the scouts who kind of represented a, a muscular Islam, uh, a, a vibrant community um, who, uh, uh, who uh, chanted uh, anti-colonial, um, anti-Zionist slogans, but which the elite never really associated with, but they were given free reign to exercise that. So the image most people may see in, in pictures of the large crowds come largely from the late 20s, early 30s, up to the time um, uh, Hajimin is forced to leave uh, the or escapes uh, after 1937. And um, by that time, it has more of this nationalist image and as nationalist festival. And so there is a clear difference in many of the observers after Hajimin uh, leaves the country in, an, in a time of the, the great revolt. Uh, the British are trying to uh, suppress this. Um, uh, they, uh, the, there's uh, different pockets of resistance throughout the country. And so <clears throat> by uh, in this era, when it is uh, when the the security of the country is in question in in British eyes, they uh, take advantage of it first uh, after nineteen in nineteen thirty eight it's it's cancelled. And the British um, say next year, you know we'll we'll allow it if uh, when people have more money to spend on Nebi Musa. And it's almost a tacit agreement with the organizers. Uh, by 1939 though, the British have militarily suppressed the revolt uh, enough that they are uh, uh, fully confident in, in, in how they govern the country. And they are confident enough to say that they're going to reorganize the festival symbolically in a way as radically as it was reorganized in the mid 19th century, where they now impose new demands that pilgrims aren't going to come from Hebron and Nablus and carry banners uh, and carry the Arab flag um, and carry uh, banners denouncing the British and chant uh, denouncing the Zionists and, and the British. Now, all the ceremonies are going to be restricted to the uh, Haram al-Sharif, where um, the, the only banners that would be permitted to be raised are uh, in the Haram al-Sharif. And um, only uh, a select group of religious officials and, and notables alongside the British uh, uh, colonial officials would be able to ceremonial, ceremoniously 
um, uh, retrieve them, fold them, uh, raise them, and then there'd be no other ceremonies outside of the haram, such as the Ras al-Amud uh, municipal tent. And that pilgrims would just go on their own without the accompaniment of a musical band or scouts or large procession of pilgrims to the shrine themselves. So they largely uh, truncated the festival, which would sometimes take uh, uh, half a day, such as the retrieval of the Nebi Musa banner from the home uh, of the Husseini home in the old city would take a couple hours or more to travel that short distance would now take, uh, it, it wouldn't even be held. Or the pilgrims coming from, the uh, pilgrims that came from uh, uh, Hebron would sometimes spend the night uh, at the railway station or assemble at the Solomon's pools uh, before entering the old city. They now truncated and eliminated that, that ceremonial entrance. So what would take hours or half the day to complete would now the, the raising of the banners would take 15 minutes. And as the British boasted, this was an orderly festival without any chance, without any hostility against us. And so to them, it was a success. And um, they, uh, they perceived it as a failure for the Palestinian nationalist leaders because they interpreted the festival only through uh, their colonial gaze as that it has to be something directed against us. So it's now failed as a festival because it's not a, a political demonstration, even though to most uh, peasants or uh, rural people, villagers um, who uh, still worshiped at the shrine, to them, the festival could still be held at the shrine. So it wasn't measured as a success or failure in that way. But to observers, even to many Palestinian observers in the press, they certainly noticed a dis distinction after uh, 1937, after 1938, that it is uh, less uh, passionate, uh, that it is uh, not as a vibrant festival, that it is a very muted celebration. And would you like me to speak about its revival? Yes, please. I'm very curious about it. Okay, well, after 48, both the Israelis and the Jordanian, uh, uh, first the Jordanians allow the festival, hesitating, they hesitate to allow it, um, and they permit it for a few more years, uh, if my memory is correct, up to... 1951 or 53 is really the last festival. Um, I'm sorry, maybe 51. And they're very restrictive in uh, allowing any visitors to the shrine outside of designated times. And so the, the, the Jordanian monarchy after especially Kim Hussein is, ascends the throne, sees it as just uh, as competition of associating an Islamic uh, site and an Islamic festival with na uh, Palestinian nationalist aspirations. So that's why they restricted. The Israelis fully restricted. 
After 67, they designate the area around the shrine as a military zone. And so it's very difficult to go there. Uh, they do allow it one time before the Intifada in 1987 to be revived. And, um, and that was the last time. Then in, under the PA in 94, they assume control of the festival. And in 95, it becomes fully under the Palestinian Authority, which uh, revives this kind of image, tries to revive the image of, uh, of, a, uh, of that Palestinians had of uh, a memory of the festival as a nationalist celebration. Uh, the shrine is uh, uh, festooned with the colors of the Palestinian flag, images of Yasser Arafat, um, and uh, there are nationalist slogans that the official festival uh, leaders um, uh, will, will say in speeches. But even then, many uh, uh, Sufis who are associated, who, who, who visit uh, rural people uh, or people throughout uh, the Palestine region um, continue to worship in a more quote unquote traditional way of wanting to worship, to venerate the shrine as a source of baraka, uh, of blessings. And this happens uh, uh, into the 2000s when there are more official ceremonies that the PA hosts, speeches, uh, dances, uh, um, uh, 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 speakers that are giving uh, speaker, uh, speeches, they have to compete with the Sufis who on their own just want to dance uh, uh, um, in a, a mystical way or perform dhikr ceremonies. And um, so there's that constant competition that is, uh, has been prevalent since the modern era, the modern festival. And in the 2000s, at one point, remarkably, the shrine became a source, uh, a site unofficially for drug rehabilitation and uh, more uh, what was described to me as religious uh, uh, extremists took men off the street who were drug addicts to the shrine as a site of uh, to rehabilitate them, uh, but it was not done in, in a proper uh, medically, uh, a medical way or a medical treatment center. But later, in, by the mid 2000s and a little later, um, there were, it became a site of a proper um, um, uh, rehabilitation center led by those trained in uh, rehabilitation. What's also interesting, and so, and I'm not sure their connection to Sufism, but when I visited in 2014, many of the men who were who were there for rehabilitation participated in the unofficial Sufi ceremonies at the shrine. Though I don't know fully the connection between their rehabilitation and, and mysticism. And, and just a final word, by around 2010, a new ritual actor appears, Turkey. Turkey begins to fund uh, renovations of the shrine as Turkey as a state supports um, many Palestinian um, uh, charitable causes, renovations. They, they highlight the shrine as a site of Ottoman 
history, while many Palestinians remember it as a, uh, uh, associated with Palestinian nationalism of the mandate period. And um, my own observation when I went, many of the organizers of the shrine almost fawned over the arrival of the Turkish ambassador and, and uh, Turkish officials because they certainly provide a lot of support uh, to the shrine. So once it's, it's, uh, it's continued to change, uh, it's, uh, it, it's not fixed in time, it's part of the larger historical dynamics. We discussed with Louis Fishman briefly in the episode I recorded with him, the ubiquitous presence of uh, Erdogan in the, in the <laughs> not just the politics of Palestine, but also literally in, in uh, you know, in daily life of Jerusalem, as I personally had the experience often to get a coffee in a, in a bookstore uh, in East Jerusalem, and more and more I start hearing people speaking Turkish, and uh, that um, sort of uh, ubiquitous presence also translates with the arrival of many uh, Turks uh, that are settling down for a period of times in Jerusalem. They're literally changing the makeup of, of the city. So it's a fascinating uh, uh, dynamic that has been taking place in the past 10 years or so. I have one- There's, uh, there's the, sorry, there's uh, uh, Janissary bands and 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 the Sufis from uh, uh, the the Jamaluddin order will uh, uh, perform there as well. So an honorary Janissary band that comes every year. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So the Ottoman legacy is still there, indeed. Yes, they they like to highlight. It. Yeah, absolutely. I have one more question, and it goes back to the very beginning when. Um, you know, we were just briefly discussing the podcast, which I literally uh, designed with the purpose to sort of make, uh, you know, the history of Jerusalem more available, and at the same time to keep the history of Jerusalem within the boundaries of academic research. So in a sense, it's a project of public history, where while interviewing scholars, uh, but also other individuals connected to the history of Jerusalem, um, you know, to use a different language and to uh, somehow make the history of Jerusalem more palatable, more understandable, and to move away from just the black and white, but to you know, tell the audience and the listeners that there are so many complexities and so many layers, and yet they, these are available, and they may help us to have a better understanding of contemporary Jerusalem. And I was wondering from your point of view as a historian, but also as a listener uh, of a podcast, is there anything that you think should be discussed anything that is missing uh, out there in forms of public history of Jerusalem that should be discussed more. So to provide better tools for people, Muslim, Jews, Christians, people with an interest in the Arab, Israeli, Palestinian conflict and cause, to get a better understanding and to have a, you know, to form their opinions, not just based on uh, uh, you know, short reports from the media, which sometimes they forget a lot of uh, these complexities. Yeah, wonderful question. Um, I think it's our responsibility uh, as historians, as uh, uh, I can say scholars of, the, uh, of this area, um, to uh, identify how radically his, uh, the social setting um, 
in Jerusalem has changed in the last three to four decades, never mind going back to 67, just since the 1980s, even. Um, and even uh, we could absolutely go back to 48, but even just in the last few decades of how radical the changes have been in the city um, under Israeli rule, where only a few years ago, like uh, the memories of my mother, their experience with Jerusalem was a city far more fluid in its uh, communal interactions, its interactions between people of different classes, people of different religions, ethnicities. I know you had a great podcast uh, regarding the um, a scholar of Armenians in Jerusalem. And um, that uh, history was uh, severed after 48. It was It was further undermined after 67 with uh, Israeli policies that in, in the words of Teddy Kollek, uh, intend to Judaize the city. Uh, that history, def uh, what we've, we're seeing in the last few decades defies uh, a historical um, a setting that had, uh, uh, that had evolved over centuries, if not millennia. And that we uh, now, you know, so many people on a, uh, uh, on a popular level associate Jerusalem as, well, it's the capital of Israel, it's a Jewish city. But it's, uh, it's a city that had a far richer history of communal interactions, of different communities, of tolerance. Uh, you know, I don't want to exaggerate and overly romanticize um, the, the interactions between different religious communities, uh, primarily uh, uh, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian in Jerusalem. But I, I think it's hard to defy when one of your former guests, uh, Mordecai Klein, uh, uh, spoke about it. The, the far more fluid interactions between the communities. And as uh, Michelle Campos uh, certainly has written about this uh, in her wonderful book, uh, uh, Ottoman Brothers. And uh, uh, a future guest you will have, uh, I know uh, uh, Abigail Jacobson, that it's far more complex and far more fluid. But our, our interpretation of it today is it's just a Jewish city. And you know, one of the you know, almost touching episodes that or vignettes that I found when, when doing my research is seeing that you know, the uh, Europeans, the, the Ottomans in the mid 19th century considered the Europeans as an audience of the festival. They wanted to declare to European consuls and representatives in the city that this is an Ottoman Islamic city, even though we know you covet it as a European, as a Christian city. And uh, one of the other audience were uh, uh, Palestinian villagers who, you know, local notables said to them, you know, this is, we're the authority, not your, your local rural notables. But a third audience 
were the Christian and, and Jewish residents of Ju Jerusalem, uh, like uh, Wasif Jawhariya, who regularly uh, attended and enjoyed watching it and, um, and participated in it. And that history, that knowledge of that is something that uh, I always enjoy reading about. It is certainly uh, not always the, uh, we don't always have to interpret in the most romantic way, but uh, it, it's, a, it's hard to defy that reality. And I think it's as much as we can to retrieve that knowledge, to retrieve that memory um, is, is something your podcast is doing, other scholars are doing a, a wonderful uh, work on as well. So I'm hoping that's what you, and I and others can, can, can continue to do. This was Awad Alabi, currently associate professor at Brighton State University and author of the upcoming book, Palestinian Rituals of Identity, the Prophet Moses Festival in Jerusalem, 1850-1948, that will be published by the University of Texas Press, uh, hopefully in the coming months. What? thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. It's been a great pleasure, and I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you for doing all the hard work for organizing this. I find it so invaluable. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.